the book is trying to think about death as a prism for understanding life in modern South Africa, as well as a window onto the complex changes and transformations in South African society and its politics in its sort of cultural identity. The wider space of death offers a really interesting window into South Africa as a whole. And obviously the HIV AIDS pandemic and the kind of widespread mortality wrought by the pandemic in South Africa is another very important reason why the story of death in the South African context just cannot be ignored. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode, I talk to Rebecca Lee, Senior Lecturer at the Department of History, Goldsmith, at the University of London. Rebecca Lee was a Fellow at SCAS during spring 2016. In this episode, we will hear more about her research and her current book project on death and memory in modern South Africa. And as always, I'm excited to learn more. And this is the third and final episode within the theme Africa. Welcome to SCAS Talks, Rebecca. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Natalie. And thank you, SCAS, for having me. This is a very exciting development of these podcast series, and I'm delighted to be here to talk about my research and just to be in the SCAS milieu again, it's very exciting. So I'm in the history department at Goldsmiths. I would say I'm a social and cultural historian of modern South Africa, but I have also written more broadly on gender, migration, urbanization. And in more recent years, I've been looking at health as well. And in a sense, my project on death and memory is a bit of a culmination of all those themes of interest. Going back to the very beginning, what sparked your interest in this research question about death and memory? It's a really good question, and it's something that I ponder often <laughs> myself, because it's an interesting field, death studies as a whole. And I think if you had asked me 15, 20 years ago, would I have envisioned myself immersed in thinking about death? I would absolutely have said not, no way. <laughs> but I, I think that in some ways it's a natural progression from the interests that I have had historically in terms of thinking about livelihoods and sort of strategies for survival, strategies of settlement, I guess, in the urban setting health issues, gender tensions and dynamics, family dynamics. So in some ways, it is actually more of a continuation of those themes rather than a kind of abrupt change. Um, one of the reasons I got into this topic was simply because my informants were constantly talking about death, were constantly talking about funerals, and tensions and stresses around planning for funerals, the expense of funerals. I spend a lot of time listening. So my research is very much on the boundaries between history and anthropology. So I spend a lot of time collecting oral histories, but I'm also 
I suppose, broadly part of a kind of ethnographically observing the subjects of my studies. So a lot of that just involves hanging around and speaking to people, listening out for rumors and stories, and certainly funerals punctuate the rhythm of everyday life in the areas that I'm most interested in. uh, Most of my work is situated in the townships of urban South Africa. And certainly anyone who's familiar with those spaces will agree with me that funerals are very much part of the everyday lives of inhabitants there. It colors the week. It also very much invades into the sort of household finances and the ways in which families try to balance, you know, often precarious lives and livelihoods with the sort of competing demands of social, societal expectation, familial expectation, cultural, even spiritual sort of values. So funerals particularly were a theme that came up quite incessantly and it became hard to ignore. It was also a very interesting space to hear lots of stories. Often people's recollections were colored by a particular untimely death. So this is more about death, actually, rather than funerals specifically, even though both are quite intertwined. So death as a prism for thinking about everyday lives and choices, sort of basically how I landed in this field, a little bit accidentally. A lot of the research came out of my first book, which was a microhistory of women in Cape Town, South Africa, it's a generational history of women in the apartheid and post-apartheid periods. Trying to finance for death was a very significant preoccupation of many of the women in my study. It cut across generational lines. It was one of the few things that younger generations of women cared about in terms of socially organizing. They were very apathetic in terms of other forms of social organization, didn't really follow what their mothers and grandmothers were doing. But actually, in terms of saving for death, that was one thing that was actually a a continuous line across the generational divide, which I found really striking and really spoke to the presentness of death kind of in the imaginaries of even the youngest. And we're talking teenagers, you know, early 20s of the youth in the places I was doing my research. This is a very big and broad question, but just thinking about death, which is the end of life, of course. So what can that tell us about life and also the society that you look at? Yes, it's a very, very big, very important question. It's also part of what drives me is because it's in some ways very central. Or So this is what I think the South African story or the South African context can teach us as well, is just how important the prism of death is to understanding social dynamics, kinship, conflicts and dynamics and connections, belonging, these sorts of things that mean something on a societal level, on an intimate level, but also more broadly on a political level as well. So in the case of South Africa, one of the reasons why I got even more interested in this field is not just looking at the space of death as a very intimate one in terms of, you know, how individual families organize around death. I mean, that's really important, but it's also about communities 
but it's also about sort of South Africa as a nation. I think that the kind of cultural politics of death in South Africa is a really potent space. It's a really interesting space, but it's also a space in flux. So I think it's a really interesting way to look at how South African society and itself as a polity has transformed in the last few decades. I think that looking at these changing ideas and practices and ways of managing death certainly give a window into how these processes reflect South Africa's wider political, social, and economic transformation. They really do offer a really interesting window into how South African communities differently belong or differently articulate their belonging. I also think it's very much a story of globalization and commodification, the ways in which the sort of products and services and the branding of funerals, particularly this is very newly emergent in the historically Black townships in South Africa. So that's a story of commodities and credit as well. More globalized financial regimes, which are now accessible. So new forms of credit, new forms of buying as a way of belonging in a way. But it's interesting to me that it's not just a sort of one-way process where you have these global forces that just kind of smother and extinguish South African culture and ideas. So it's not really that these things operate in tension with and often against these you know, larger global commercial financial forces. So it's not a straightforward story of just absorption. There's a lot of reappropriation, translation, and even resistance as well against these larger forces. So in that itself is also a microcosm of South Africa and the way it's trying to situate itself as a democratic nation state, as a regional power, as a continental power, and as a global force as well. So I think kind of looking at the wider space of death offers a really interesting window into South Africa as a whole. And obviously the HIV AIDS pandemic and the kind of widespread mortality wrought by the pandemic in South Africa is another very important reason why the story of death in the South African context just cannot be ignored. So that kind of mortality shock, I suppose, is something that I think kind of is there both explicitly and sort of implicitly in the ways in which people think about death and the dying process. It's absolutely there as a kind of sometimes unspoken, sometimes explicitly, but often unspoken sort of moral, spiritual kind of crisis or a reckoning, I suppose, that is also there. So all this sort of is happening. All these changes, all these dynamics are crisscrossing the space of death. And I think that's why I found it a really illuminating place to be for myself. Yeah, I can only guess that the HIV AIDS pandemic had an enormous impact with so many young people um, dying. Yes, absolutely. It's a very particular crisis of mortality. It's a very particular kind of demographic shock. Obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, everyone kind of globally is thinking about pandemics, generally speaking, and also the 
connections to previous histories, previous experiences of pandemics. So it has made people more aware about, I guess, their own mortality. And certainly in the South African case, COVID-19 is not the most recent and not even necessarily the most serious public health crisis that it's had to deal with. Certainly HIV AIDS continues to be one of its most important public health dilemmas to confront. You mentioned the youth. So the specific kind of demographics of the way in which HIV and AIDS have impacted South African society is definitely something that I would say it's appreciated in terms of its economic costs, because obviously the 18 to 40 age cohort or whatever is the most you know economically viable demographics in the population. So I think that that's been modeled, it's been appreciated. I think perhaps the social and spiritual costs have been harder to quantify, harder to assess. So I would put my work alongside those of many other social scientists and historians who are trying to perhaps ask broader questions about how does something of such magnitude rearrange or reform or transform a society. When I prepared for this podcast, I asked you for a little bit of material to to read or look at in this case, and you sent me a link to a documentary you made in 2012 called The Price of Death. It was very interesting to watch. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about this project? How did it come to be? Why did you make a documentary about your work? Thanks so much for asking about that. I'm glad you liked it. The documentary film was very much born out of a desire to have a form of public engagement or some kind of output that was more readily accessible to the wider public. This was quite important to myself as well as my collaborators. So my research on death was funded by the Arts Humanities Research Council. This was a collaboration with Professor Megan Vaughan, who's now at UCL, University College London. And we had two colleagues, Mark Lamont and Walima Kalusa, who were also involved as postdoctoral fellows on the project. And the four of us really were very committed to exploring the history of death in Africa, but in ways that were more accessible to the wider public. So alongside producing kind of traditional academic outputs, We have, you know, thought about photographs, other sorts of visual material. And film was definitely something that I, I myself was just personally interested in exploring as a medium. The funding did definitely allow us to produce this short documentary. And I really kind of jumped at it. When I was thinking about what I could focus on, certainly my death research has kind of spanned different groups of people in different areas. One of the most vivid, I guess, cohorts that of informants that I had were these funeral entrepreneurs who were based in predominantly Black African townships. And they regaled me with extremely colorful stories of their exploits and their travails. One funeral undertaker had to hide in a coffin as his business was being robbed. And they had endless stories of all kinds of mishaps and feuding families and 
vehicle breakdowns and violence and wealth and collapse of their business anyway. So they, they're really exciting, very gregarious people. And so I thought that they would probably make a good story, a good film. And I thought that the kind of this emergence of, a, of this um, township funeral business also visually was going to be really arresting and interesting. So then it was about trying to find the right angle in or the right perspective to do a documentary. So I focused on one particular undertaking business. It's called Dikela's uh, Funeral Parlor, run by a gentleman called Mpulelo Mtundesi, who has unfortunately passed away. He was fantastic, very open, very welcoming. He just gave us free reign to follow him around. And then it became quite apparent that the film needed something more than just the business side. So obviously we had to kind of zoom in on a funeral in a way. And that became a bit harder as well because one has to think about permissions and ethics and, you know, this sort of thing. And um, luckily we did find a family who was very willing for us to follow them as they planned for the funeral and as the funeral was taking place. As we were shooting, I guess, it became more evident, though this wasn't really necessarily the plan at the beginning, was that this second story of the kind of mourning process of the family who were the customers, the clientele of Dikela's funerals became kind of the second really important narrative thread of the film. So the documentary really kind of goes back and forth between the business side, but hopefully also the, the more human emotional side of this sister who was really in charge of burying her brother who died at a very young age. It's not really revealed in the film, but he has died of HIV AIDS, AIDS related complications. It's sort of hinted at, but it's, it's something that I guess we decided, or I decided I didn't really want to put explicitly in the film itself, but it's sort of gestured at I suppose, more subtly in certain places of the film. Anyway, so as we were kind of editing and re-editing, I guess, the footage, the emotional trajectory of the sister became as important as outlining the ways in which the business ran, their operating constraints, their challenges. What I was hoping to achieve was a bit of a counterpoint between these two stories and these two very arresting individuals, actually. Also visually as well, that seemed to work. Yeah, so it was a really great learning experience. I learned a lot about thinking about narrative and emotional undercurrents, I guess, and also sort of visualizing a story rather than working incessantly with text, which is what I'm kind of used to. So thinking about scenes and what sort of material we had on a visual level that was the most evocative, I guess, and how to thread that through together. So I, I learned a, a great deal. I, well, I definitely hope to carry on in this medium in, in some form. And we've done a lot of screening of the film. We had a really nice screening in Kailicha Township, which was the township where Mr. Umtundesi had his funeral parlor. And that was fantastic. We invited some funeral directors, some leaders of faith organizations from different religions, and some community leaders. 
as well as some academics. And we just had a really nice screening and a bit of a panel afterwards. And it was really gratifying to hear people's commentary, really. (laughs) One of the audience members was like, I want to get into the funeral business. So I didn't think that I created an advert for the funeral business, but it was very interesting that one very young audience member thought that 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 was their uh, reaction anyway. I think there was a kind of diversity of opinion. Some were shocked, some were horrified. Some were like, oh, okay, yeah, this is how it is, isn't it? Anyway, so, so that was really, really gratifying for me because often in this world of academia, very few people read your material and certainly not the people that you're writing about can access the material. So this was one way that I could engage with these communities in ways that I couldn't before. So let's go from film to book then. Many academics write things, as you already said, so you're back at writing. So currently you're working on a book on the subject Death and Memory in Modern South Africa. And I guess part of it we have already talked about, but what aspects are you looking at in more detail in your book? Uh, Thanks for asking. The book is trying to think about death as a, in some ways what I have said earlier about death as a prism for understanding life in modern South Africa, as well as a window onto the complex changes and transformations in South African society and its politics and its sort of cultural identity as well. So the book kind of tries to take in about four decades worth. It starts, these are very rough chronological boundaries, but looking at transitional apartheid, so like towards the ending of the apartheid period, so the late 80s, early 90s, onwards through the pretty much the present day, certainly through the entirety of the AIDS pandemic, which is, as I said earlier, sort of a subtext that comes through in moments in the book. So I'm interested in death, more broadly speaking, than funerals themselves. So funerals are a very important component. I had thought about this book In previous incarnations, I could have written a book entirely on the funeral business. You know, as you can see, it's extremely rich, very evocative. But I I thought that the township funeral business, as interesting as it is, doesn't capture necessarily all the negotiations and cultural politics and that death is a much wider space of contestation than just what's happening amongst these fledgling funeral entrepreneurs. So that's part of that work. But I wanted to think about death in much more broader brushstrokes. So what the book, so I'm still writing it, (laughs) but what I hope it will do is look at death broadly in two ways, two sort of thematic axes kind of buttress the work. So the first is looking at death as a space of conversion and transformation. And then the second is looking at death and the sort of mobility and the moral economy of death. So the second part is where the funeral entrepreneurs and that kind of death as a business come in, because one of the preoccupations I have is thinking about 
the intersection of death and mobility. So kind of how does migration and sort of Africans embodied experience and historical experience of migration from rural areas into the urban setting, how is that mediated through the death process? So that's part of the second axis. The first one is really thinking about death as a space of transformation. So how are ideas and institutions and values contested, made public and transformed through death practices and ideas around death? I look at different spheres, trying to think about scenes where death is important. For example, in that first section, I look at HIV AIDS advocates. Um, So these are HIV positive, mostly women, who become themselves advocates for other HIV AIDS sufferers. And I think about their own illness narratives. And also, more specifically, because it's a book about death, I, I think about the deaths that they've experienced. So many of the women, for example, have talked about mourning their children who died of AIDS-related causes, so small children, babies, or family members. So they have sort of multiple mourning experiences, multiple experiences of death, often AIDS-related death. And there hasn't been enough thinking about how these AIDS advocates themselves have coped with or not coped with these multiple deaths in their own life histories, and also how these multiple deaths are hidden, even in their own kind of self-realization. So that chapter really is about thinking about processes of mourning and processes of transformation. So these AIDS advocates, they become very articulate, very empowered, you know, in a kind of human rights global citizenship sort of discourse because they've been able to move through the AIDS advocacy organizations that they're a part of. So they're employed, they're empowered, they often have a very specific way of framing their life trajectory as kind of like a near death to new life. This is something that anthropologist Stephen Robbins articulated so well in his study of AIDS advocacy. So there's this kind of like transformation that, you know, I'm on antiretrovirals, I've been saved, these drugs have saved me, now I can save others because I'm converted. But often what I found actually when you speak to, again, this is mostly female AIDS advocates are the ones that I've spoken to, there's a real stuckness so a real stasis, I suppose. So it's not all about transformation. And if you get behind the scenes of why kind of that self-transformation is not fully realized, you see actually that there are all these sort of hidden stories of unresolved death in their lives. So that chapter is really thinking about how to understand that or how to, in a way, theorize that. But theorizing sounds a little bit too academic, I guess. So in a way, it's, it's more about understanding the limits of that kind of transformation and the the way in which death is quite central to those narratives. I also look in that chapter at one organization called Educo Africa. Um, It's an NGO that actually offers outdoors, experiential healing process 
specifically around death. So what I do is I profile a couple AIDS advocates who went through this other NGO to access kind of a very different form of therapy, outdoors, wilderness therapy, very South African, you know, new age almost. And actually it helped heal, which is really interesting. So so it's about looking at those kinds of spaces and places where death is meaningfully engaged with and seeing what happens, I suppose. So it's about HIV AIDS, but not really. It's really about the people who are behind the pandemic and what are the emotional and moral costs, spiritual costs as well that they have to shoulder and who's around, what sort of support services around them to help them make sense of those costs. Because I think there's not enough research on the challenges that those advocates themselves undergo. They're kind of lionized as heroes the unsung heroes, and they do everything great, and they're often unpaid or underpaid. But actually, there's a real emotional toll that's often suppressed. But there are some organizations in South Africa that are really working to help them, to service them. And so it's about bringing those things to light, I suppose. Not just the hidden struggles of the HIV AIDS advocates, but also those organizations that are actually trying to grapple with that and do a service to kind of the silent army of volunteers and advocates who are trying to address the HIV AIDS pandemic in some way. Mm. Sounds really interesting and like a lot of layers. So work and information and things to take into consideration, really. I suppose this is partly why I get so much out of the intersection between history and anthropology is that I think that kind of observation is really important practices, sort of the practical realm, rituals and things that are maybe performed and embodied are sometimes more expressive than sort of recorded testimony. So I try to use both or arrange and sometimes they kind of rub up against each other, but in interesting ways. That chapter in particular, I think that it was a process of speaking to my informants, but also just listening. And then I ended up participating in one of these. I think it's called The Practice of Living and Dying. That was the name of the workshop. So I attended one of these sessions. It was like a three to five days, like really in the, the middle of nowhere <laughs> in the uh, Winterhook mountain range. And I had a, a really amazing and difficult time. So that was something that I experienced myself. So I guess got, gave me a window into more the experiential side of what was happening. So I think that helped for sure in trying to figure out, you know, what is actually happening here and what are the processes of mourning and suppression and redemption, those sorts of questions, because one asks that of oneself when you're a participant, which is what I had to do. But I wanted to as well. So those are the things that I, I learned. And you definitely have to unlayer all the layers. That does take time and perhaps a mixed methodology as well. I'm just getting really curious when you talk about these workshops. Can you just give us an example of what, you, what kind of thing you do there? It was a fantastic experience, actually, just on a personal level. It was a mixed group of people. Some came purely of their own accord as a kind of 
self-realization project. Others came through being referred to by their parent organization, like some of these HIV AIDS advocates who were sent as a kind of personal development or professional development. Some were identified as needing some work in this area, but there were also a lot of private individuals who were kind of fee paying who just felt that this was an experience that they wanted to go through. So that was a really interesting, incredibly diverse group, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different nationalities. It was a lovely group of people. And then the Educo Africa, there were quite a few facilitators. It was very hands-on, very interactive, very small groups. And each day was kind of a, it was meant to sort of mirror the sort of stages of death and acceptance sort of thing. Every day was a different challenge. And there was a sense of progression. And it involved a lot of time away. So we'd be in a circle. We'd discuss what we'd have to do about the day. One of the facilitators would give a sort of lesson is really too strong a word, but more like a reflection. Every day there was a different interactive, like a task. So you go out in the wilderness, you got to do something. So like one of them was to build like a death lodge, you know, so this was, I think, borrowing a little bit from sort of Native American traditions. If someone was, you know, on their deathbed, a specific space was created and then people were meant to be summoned, both living in the dead to that space to reconcile with the person who's about to die. So you're supposed to make peace with everybody before you can release yourself from this world, this sort of thing. So you had to go find your spot, make a bit of a death lodge. You could make it out of twigs or some stones or whatever. Then you have to think about who you wanted to enter in that space. So who are the people you have not yet made peace with? Living or dead, which I thought was really interesting. So for myself, it was living and deceased individuals, and you summon them and you have a conversation with them, you know, those sorts of things. And you do that all on your own, and then you come back. And then another really, really great thing that happened was when you come back, you don't just come back and that's it. And there was a really interesting process called mirroring, which I actually do write about in this chapter because I think it's really interesting. It's a kind of active way of listening. You're paired off with one other, with a facilitator, and they listen to your story, and then they reflect back what you've said, but it's not about repetition. It's about something more personal, but also more powerful than just repetition. So they reflect back what you've said in a form of mirroring, and that's actually really interesting. I found that very, very enlightening as well, to hear what someone else has absorbed of what you've just said and reframing it for you to see this is what it is that you've gone through. And so that happened every single day, a form of mirroring. Everyone had a chance to be heard for whom English wasn't the first language. You know, South Africa is a nation of 11 official languages. And so the facilitators were very, very multilingual, which was extremely beneficial. So you choose a language you want to speak in, and you will get mirrored back in that language, which I think is really important. So those were some of the things that happened. And and every day progressed. 
until there was one night there was a big bonfire and you know you were basically meant to die that night and we had this huge celebration to kind of mark our deaths and you had to really think about you know out of those ashes what is the new you that you want to be it is very much about thinking about those unresolved deaths whether they're figurative deaths like metaphorical deaths or actual deaths in many cases these were actual deaths that were unresolved and so i think all the participants reflected really deeply on those deaths um, that informed their story and that informed their kind of eventual dying as well so it was kind of about these little little deaths that inform your own death as a person and then out of those ashes should come something else obviously that is always the challenge in those kind of spaces it feels very powerful very real the challenge is always bringing those realizations with you back home and certainly that's part of what i look at as well in this chapter is the limits of that kind of transformative arc as powerful as it is where does it stop it must be quite an intense experience to be in this uh, workshop and and deal with all this it's a lot of sharing and you have to be very truthful and you can't really hide which is hard but the, I actually have to commend the facilitators because they have to do this all the time every time and they're sharing as well. Some of them have gone through really really difficult experiences of their own and they kind of have to sort of relive them all the time. So I commend them especially. One of the subjects which you also are taking up in the book and you've also published articles about it is mobility and migration. Can you tell us a little bit more about that in the context of your research? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. So I've been preoccupied with migration and mobility ever since I started research in South Africa. I've written somewhere that mobility is part of the script of South Africans' lives. It is the case. There is a very particular orientation to movement. I would say this is perhaps not even a south african particularity i would say that generally in sub saharan africa if, if you were to say mobility and migration is absolutely central to living life on the continent probably this would ring true in many 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 places but it certainly is the case in south africa that mobility is writ large in individual people's lives and family histories and trajectories over time in gendered histories so i was very much interested in gendered processes of migration so it's hard not to encounter a story about movement in some form in the south african context i'm really interested in the kind of migration and mobility patterns that are responsible for these households that are stretched across distance like between rural and urban poles so many african or black south african families are stretched across rural and urban areas and even if you say you're a resolute city dweller you will most likely have some kind of connectedness to a rural area of some kind and obviously the apartheid system or apartheid made some of those connections between rural and urban areas artificial or kind of politicized those 
distinctions in a way, because the Nationalist Party really very much wanted for much of the apartheid period to keep rural South Africans rural. And they wanted to deny the existence of an urban African population. Certainly towards the end of apartheid, the latter decades, they realized this was an impossible endeavor. So I'm really interested in how distance figures into the calculus of African families and their strategies and their self-understandings and their ideas of belonging. How does that work across these stretched boundaries between rural and urban areas? So that's been a preoccupation for more than two decades, ever since I started looking at South Africa seriously. If you have a predisposition to migration, then death is absolutely one of those spheres in which migration figures very heavily. That's partly where this funeral entrepreneur work comes in, is that these township undertakers are, or I found them to be really adept straddling that distance. And some of the profitability of their enterprises is a direct result of that agility in kind of traversing rural and urban areas. Because when someone dies in the urban area, in a city, and they want, for example, to be buried in their rural area of origin, natal home, for example, this is one of the things that's profiled in you know my documentary is one of these funerals that happens at distance. So it's, I think, about 1,000 or 1,100 kilometers between where the deceased, the brother died, and then where he ended up being buried. So there's a lot of complexity that's part of that calculus of what to do when someone dies in one place but wants to be buried somewhere else. And it's not just a financial calculus at all. It's also an emotional, moral one. So Who's making the decisions? Where is the seat of ritual authority in a household? Is it in the urban setting? Is it in the rural setting? Then who gets to decide what happens to the the body? In what ways is that body interred? This is one of the things that becomes interesting. For example, in one of the chapters in my book, I look at conversions to Islam that are happening. And again, death figures in as an interesting space where the limits of the conversion from Christianity to Islam or from traditional African belief systems to Islam are being tested. So what happens when the ritual authority is being contested over distance? Who gets to decide what happens to the body, how it's being interred, how that body is going to be remembered? How is that person going to be remembered? You know, all those questions. So I think that migration and mobility really become even more pregnant with meaning and possibility when you see how it intersects with this space of death. One of the chapters in my book in that section on mobility and migration deals with transnational migrants in South Africa. So it's looking at Somali, Zimbabwean, uh, Congolese migrants, uh, for example. So there are these communities who are in South Africa now Most of them have come in the waning years of apartheid or in the immediate post-apartheid period. And they represent really interesting and different death cultures. And they themselves have to deal with, well, what happens when someone in their own community in South Africa dies? Do we repatriate the body? 
Do we bury them in this foreign land that is not welcoming to us? So there are all these calculations. You know, certainly many of those transnational migrants have experienced um, xenophobia in South Africa, sort of a discourse of, you don't belong here, you're taking our jobs, etc. So there's a really interesting other kind of migration dynamic. So not just of South Africans who are balancing rural and urban, but of these transnational migrants who are now in South Africa thinking across you know, national boundaries, how to balance their own moral and familial requirements as well. So there's a lot of negotiations and a lot of difficult discussions and, and a lot of innovation as well. I guess that's the other thing that I suppose is profoundly why I keep doing this research is that I, I think it's not always a story of defeat or unbearable weight, though there are those stories as well. But there are often stories of innovation and surprisingly fertile ways of connecting and making new connections that are really interesting. So that's partly what the chapter on um, transnational migration is about, is exploring actually new forms of technology that are not new anymore, but at the time were fairly new. I was looking at things like cell phones and, you know, Facebook and sort of, I mean, these are very old and very ancient now almost, but uh, at the time I was doing my research about 10 years ago, that was something that, that was only beginning to be part of death or funerary management, I suppose, in these transnational African communities. That chapter is very much about distance, mobility new technologies and ways in which these migrant communities try in their own way to mediate death in South Africa. Yeah, what struck me was that when people then travel these distances to bury their dead in the hometown, so to say, or home area, they travel these large distances and that itself is a risk, of course, for accidents and... Oh, yes. I guess my next big project is inspired by these problems of road accidents and road safety and road danger, ideas of road danger. So my next big kind of research project is actually more explicitly on those dynamics, but certainly inspired by this research. Given those distances are generally traversed by motorized transport, and also given the uneven state of the vehicles in operation and the timescales involved. There's a sort of need to be very fast. You have to traverse those distances in a very, very short, compressed period of time. So there are lots of road accidents en route. I actually have a really vivid image in my mind. We did one of those as we were filming, right? So we had to follow this minivan that was carrying the corpse in a trailer behind because that's the typical way corpses are transported. So it was a minivan filled with about 10 to 15 mourners and then a trailer filled with suitcases, but also the coffin with the body of the deceased towed behind. And so we were following this vehicle because we wanted to shoot some clips of it. And it's a really difficult journey. We really struggled. But I have this very, really abiding memory of stopping at a rest stop in the middle of nowhere 
at like two in the morning and it was heaving. It was so full of people and cars. And this was like on the way to the Eastern Cape from Cape Town. And it was like, I don't know, Grand Central Station or something like that. There were so many vehicles, bright lights, people were buzzing. Everything was just happening. And you could see the line of vehicles. It wasn't a traffic jam as such, but it was definitely a continuous line of vehicles. And I just thought this is a very extraordinary moment. I think the cocktail of speed, urgency, not necessarily licensed vehicles, not the best drivers necessarily who are working under quite a lot of pressure actually to make it on time. Sometimes there are fights that happen amongst the mourners in transit, which is a very real distraction. Sometimes the drivers complain of mourners in their vehicles who are drinking as well as fighting. So there's a kind of very unhealthy mix of things happening. And sometimes there are accidents. Your tires can blow out. They're going at very fast speed. There's very little room to make a mistake, essentially. It's a hazardous enterprise. It's the biggest cost if the funeral entrepreneurs, if you speak to them about what's their biggest stress, it's like insuring their vehicles or paying for damages if they get into an accident. What if one of the mourners gets hurt? Who's going to pay for those hospital costs? So these are the kinds of things that really stress these small business owners. And for me, it's really interesting, you know, again, thinking sort of more broadly, so not just about the, I guess, the financials of the funeral business, but more about how these road accidents are spoken about and kind of mythologized as well. So what are the causes of that accident? So why did it happen with this body in tow? Why did that accident happen? And is there an explanation? Is there a deeper explanation that can tell us why this accident at that particular point in time happened? And A lot of families speak about these accidents as if there are ways to link it to the deceased. Perhaps the deceased didn't want to be buried in the place that it was going to, and it was making its feelings known. Perhaps there was an unresolved family conflict that was the root cause of the accident happening, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the kind of search for causation is something that a lot of families themselves kind of struggle with or debate. And so I'm interested in that too. So why is this causation located in particular understandings and not in, say, because the person didn't wear the seatbelt or because he was drink driving? Why are the more conventional (laughs) reasons that in the West you would use in a kind of road safety paradigm? Why are those not embraced? in sort of the popular discourse or popular imagination, I suppose. So that's interesting to me, that disconnect. I think it's something that I think road safety experts or whatever road safety studies need to be more cognizant of are these other registers of understanding of road danger and road accidents. This is a really interesting topic and I think we could talk for a long time. But let's switch topic a little bit and talk about SCAS. You were a scholar here during spring 2016, a little while ago. Can you tell us a little bit about your stay? Like, what did you work on, for example, while you were here? 
Yes, I'd love to answer this question because I had an amazing experience at SCAS. I sing the praises of SCAS even when I'm not here being interviewed by you. I mention it to my colleagues. I had an amazing time. I had a very nurturing time. I had a very stimulating time at SCAS. So the work that I was doing there was, it turned out to be my second book. It's recently come out now in February. It's called Health, Healing, and Illness in African History. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's a bit of a, I suppose it's an introductory book which surveys kind of 300 years of history, looking at ideas and institutions and agents in the medical history of Africa, but also looking at African healing and healers, as well as more conventional, I suppose, histories of disease, you know, epidemics, pandemics in the African context. So it tries to bring together medical history of Africa, which is a really big field, but also combine it with medical anthropology and public health. So it's not really a history of disease, it's a history of health and illness, I suppose, and healing as well. So not just medicine, but healing. So to try to think of ways in which African approaches to healing and to health figure into a wider colonial, Western global history of interventions on the African continent. So it's a kind of trying to, to synthesize a really wide and vast history. So yes, it was hard, actually. It's hard to think through such big topic and think through such huge brushstrokes, particularly as a, I guess, a South Africanist. Many academics were kind of used to thinking quite narrowly, you know, in your very specific area of expertise. But the book was much more broader, bigger brushstrokes, a wider sweep of history, very interdisciplinary. Anyway, it was the perfect place to kind of test out those ideas at someplace like SCAS. So I found the environment there really generous. I had a lovely office in the Botanic Gardens. I have to applaud Bjorn for the environment that he created and the team that was around surrounding us and kind of enveloping us. I felt very well fed in a physical sense, but very much more in an intellectual sense. The collection of scholars who were there at the time were extremely stimulating, made really great just companions around the, the lunch table, but also at the, the works in progress, the seminars, really interesting, incisive. And I, I found it Every week was like a bit of mental exercise I had to do. I kind of had to stretch myself to try to understand, you know, dense philosophy or African archaeology or Chinese history. Or There were ways that I could do it. So it was really nice to be pushed to explore not just these fields and subject areas in their own right, but to think about how my work connects to their work. So I think that's part of what makes SCAS such a fantastic place that generates new ways of thinking is because you are really pushed to think about connections from your work to their work, to your colleagues' work that you would never have guessed before. Yes, I had a great time. I felt very cared for. I came with two kids, two very small children. 
and my husband and we all felt as a, a family environment as well. And obviously it's Sweden, so I think the family environment was part of the attraction as, as well, but certainly SCAS went above and beyond to support us as a family. As a, a female academic historian, I think those kinds of support structures are really important to producing work, good work. I certainly would not have been able to publish this book that just came out in February without that six-month really kind of sacred period where I was supported and as a colleague, but that my children were cared for and I could afford it. And all these things are are very much part of the package, I guess, the unseen costs, I suppose. And I think that Scus really was aware of those burdens, I suppose, in a way, and made them very light. For that, I'm very, very grateful. It's interesting that you mentioned these aspects of family support and all the practical things around it that make it possible for you to come and then also to work uh, undisturbed. Absolutely. I think that there's a difference between giving an opportunity for a fellowship and then enabling that fellow to flourish. And the second part is a lot harder than the first. And I think that's really very much what SCAS gave me, is that created those conditions from beginning to end. And that's really important. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. I'm looking forward to your book. Also wish you a very nice summer. Thank you. Happy, happy summer to you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third and final episode in the theme Africa, and I have talked to Rebecca Lee, Senior Lecturer at the Department of History at Goldsmith, University of London, and Fellow at SCAS during Spring 2016. In the previous episodes about Africa, we have heard more about the labor market in post-colonial Africa from Andreas Eckert and about past and present ecologies on Zanzibar from Stephanie Wynne-Jones. These are episodes 18 and 14 if you want to listen. This episode marks the end of the spring season for SCAS Talks. We now have a total of 21 episodes covering the following topics. The coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. The variety of topics and scholars featured in SCAS Talks is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope that you find something of interest to you or that you discover a new fascinating topic just by listening. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and I would like to thank Rebecca Lee and all the other scientists who have contributed to SCAS Talks so far once again. I also thank you for listening and wish you a very nice summer. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.